right. We're back. The Whiskey Hue. America calls Clyde Black, Athul Brown, and Anthony somewhere in the confusing middle. We're three brothers, various shades of brown, bringing you the latest in tech, business, and startups mixed with a ton of sarcasm. Cue the music. That's where you start dancing, singing. Greg's bow, dancing. Bow, oh, sit down. Sit down, sit down, sit down. You got a slap guitar going on. I like it. The wah wah. All right. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, we. Greg Brigida is the VP of Strategic Markets at Zucasa, an interactive group watching platform built on industry-leading video compression. The company is based in California. Greg, however, is based in Berlin, Germany. He is a native New Yorker, though, and who has spent the last decade prior to this in the Middle East at Northwestern Sister Campus in Doha. And we'll get into all of that in a minute. Uh, his background is in media, entertainment, and education, and he's a fellow Fordham MBA alum. We were together, Dean Everett, Dean Everett Dennis was the head of the media and communications department at the time at Fordham and similar to the role that Bojena Mirzueska has now. And a few later, years later, I think uh, Dr. Dennis went over to Northwestern and I think a few years later you joined him as well, right? Uh, yeah. Great, was, great guy. Great yeah, job. it was about, uh, about six months after he got there, um, you know, position opened oh, so up. That I, soon. Yeah, okay. yeah, threw my hat in the ring and the stars aligned. Yeah, so clearly you were the favorite student, not me. Uh, so good, but no, he's a he's a superstar, and I'm glad you joined him. And I, I met some of your students. Uh, we I did a couple of sessions with you know I think some of your students. Uh, wish they could have flown us out, but it was during the pandemic. And then it, this was in Doha, and then I actually didn't end up flying through there on my way to India in January, in December and January of this year, friendly. But beautiful, beautiful area, and you know your students are sharp. And then Greg, I always appreciate any every time we chat about. Everything, you know, we'll get into business, music, entertainment, sports, clearly everything and the business models around them. So all around good guy. And I'm excited to have him on the pod today. Uh, we're going to get into the trenches on the court, mix it up a bit. Uh, but, you know, and I want him to quickly first fill in some quick gaps that I may have missed as I was doing your intro, because there's a lot more to you than just what, you know, these two lines that I just said about you. And then we'll get into our discussion later about the music catalog acquisitions, which is our play for today. And this again is for... Our Fordham audience, uh, I wanted Greg. It would have been awesome for him to speak in class. He just happens to be in Germany. I don't have a budget to fly him in, so I was waiting for him to come come by. Uh, we're going to do that next time. But he's not going to be in before the end of class, but this is the next best thing, so let's let's go with it. Fill in some gaps, Greg. What did I miss in your glorious background? Yeah, well, first of all, you know, Tool, great to be back. Um, you know, loved having a chance to do the episode with you last time and uh, uh, so be able to do this again and, and help uh, support the Fordham community um, is, you know, really a privilege and uh, appreciate the kind words and introduction. Yeah, as you said, you know, I, I born and raised in New York and, um, you know, I bounced around, was in e-commerce, was in analytics, uh, electronic components, even for a stretch, and uh, then got into higher education and thought that would kind of be the uh, a bit of a breather, you know, from the corporate space and ended up really falling in love with it and um, got a chance to spend about 10 years uh, in the Middle East at Northwestern's campus there, um, was in student affairs and then headed up um, strategy and planning for them. Was also adjunct faculty, similar to you at, at Fordham, taught media entrepreneurship, innovation, um, strategic nice. communications for grad and, and undergrad. And uh, it, it was an incredible experience. And um, I'm still in touch with many of those students and um, you know, so grateful for that opportunity. And to be able to see where many of them have gone on to, you know, either staying in touch or seeing on LinkedIn. And, um, you know, it, it really made, you know, the entire um, effort worth it. 
great experience. You know, anyone who has a chance to live and work abroad, particularly in the Middle East, highly recommend it. Um, it's it's you know beautiful place and, and some of the most amazing people I've ever met. And yeah, so you know, excited today to talk a bit about the music industry and all the new things that are happening. You know, these days, some of which we're you know hearing a little bit about, some of it we hear a lot about. Um, and so, just you know, great to be back and uh, to have this conversation with uh, with you. There's so many events being hosted there in a phenomenal way, uh, and there's wonderfully done and wonderfully crafted. So it's it's exciting to see what the jump they've made in 20 years. We could chat about that in another conversation. What China's done in 20 years, but we'll do that. We'll have you back on for all of those things. But that's okay. What we're going to do today, first, I'm going to give you a little kind of a table of contents per se, and then we're going to get into the drink of the day. Of course, we have to. Um, we'll talk about why catalog ex- acquisitions are happening in the music space. Um, from an artist perspective and investment perspective, because they're kind of different, right? And the rights and royalties, we can define them. We'll probably p- plug that into later because that's kind of a, a sleeper, a snoozer part of the conversation. The top funds in the space, how you, the listener, c- could become involved if you wanted to, and the future of the industry and blockchain. So we'll talk about all that and then um, stay tuned for all of that. But first, let's get into the drink. Okay, where you are, the whiskey hue, but we have all kinds of drinks on, you know, enter our arena. So whiskey, scotch, a lot of times we have, we've had gin, we've had beer, wine. What do you have for us today? So I am drinking beer today and, you know, being of course here in, in Berlin, um, I have a former colleague of mine who started uh, with some of her friends, a craft brewery here in Berlin called Berlo, B-R-L-O. So I recommend you check them out. It's uh, B-R-L-O beer. Uh, and on Instagram, they've got incredible content. They're you know brilliant marketers, really fun group, and their beer is absolutely incredible. Um, and so I've been uh, a fan of theirs for a number of years, and now to be here in Berlin um, to be able to kind of have it on the ready um, is is great. So of course, can't be doing this episode without a uh, Berliner Weiss from Berlo beer. I love it. Have I seen this here in the States? It seems like a familiar looking bottle. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if they're in the States yet. God, I hope so. Um, BRLO. Okay. Uh, yeah. Anyone, uh, you know, here in, in, in Europe, particularly in Germany, uh, make sure to, to check out their brewery, the restaurant. You can buy it in a number of stores as well. Support them. Incredible, incredible group. And do they have a wide arena of flavors? Like do they have IPAs, oh, yeah. they have everything? IPAs, but all okay, sorts of it. stuff. They've got craft stuff. They've got, uh, you know, all sorts of pale ales. It's, uh, it's delicious. Delicious. Okay. So I love it. So I will definitely check that out because I'm, I'm interested in some of these kind of craft beers. Like there's a cane brewery I like. It's an IPA based in, and I like it more for nostalgic sakes because with the, some dear friends I had it with right before we moved from one location to another, we had that looking at the, you know, the skyline. It was a beautiful day. Uh, so th- now I love it. Now we live kind of close to the brewery and the brewery's kind of fun. Went there for Father's Day. So I had my kids, you know, young kids hanging out and drinking beer with my mom, you know, their mom and I, my, my wife and I. But it's, it's, it's cool. But it's craft beers are a fun kind of little place to play. Uh, they're interesting to try the different flavors. Um, thank you. Thank you. I'm drinking again whiskey. It's only 8 a.m. So I only did two glasses full. I'm kidding. It's a little later in the day, but I have a, a small pour just to join Greg, but it's Rampur. I've it's been on the pod before. I thought it was something simple and light because I have meetings after this, so I don't get too crazy. Okay, let's get into the conversation. So, music acquisitions, and I knew Greg was one of the guys I had to speak to about this because we've actually chatted about it, and he has some deeper insight on this as well. I can level set first, and I can hand it over to Greg if you want. Uh, you know, what do you think, Greg? We'll do that. Yeah, um, sounds good to me. 
um, why don't we get into why? Let's do this. Let's let's leave the rights and publishing and all the rights and royalties and all that. Let's leave that till later when it needs to come up. We can get into some of the reasons it's happening. So why is a lot of this stuff happening now? Uh, you're hearing a lot of, you know, Bob Dylan, Dr. Dre, Justin Bieber, Justin Timberlake, Whitney Houston, Bob Marley. All these names have had a lot of their catalogs. Majority of them have been 100% acquired, their rights to them, which means there are others that have has, you know, the, the record label or other owners in, in, in that mix. And we can get into all of that later. But, and then, you know, like someone like Fleetwood Mac had like, I think 80% of her dial, you know, catalog, which is only, which was a hundred mil. Whereas some people are getting a hundred mil for the first, all hundred percent of their share. Cause Fleetwood Mac is a, you know, a 50 year career, a 60 year probably. No, 56, 60s, right? Yeah. 70s? It's, yeah. Shit, I don't know. Yeah. I would say, yeah, probably late 60s into the 70s. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's a, you know, and, iconic hits that have been remade you know i know like uh chicago smashing pumpkins they remade landslide and it was a big hit around the time we were in school so it was like you know the and a lot of hits that have come through and they have an interesting backstory you know the original uh swingers came out of there wasn't vince vaughn and them but you can look that up uh but so they have interesting backstory within that group as well the dynamic but a couple main reasons as to this happening so let's start the simply put a lot of artists feel that they maybe have extracted at with the ownership that they have and where they are with their relationship with all the companies, let's say the record labels or whatever other companies own the other portion of these rights in on a music catalog, on a, on a song track. They feel like they may have re extracted most of the value that they could actually bring, you know, get from the table and bring to the table. Like them, their likeness being associated with it isn't going to bring them that much more unless someone else puts in equal effort. So they said, let me cash on out. One big reason is we've had lower interest rates for like 10, 15 years running. Um, the previous administration kept that in tow. There's a threat now that the current administration in the U.S. might increase the tax rate. So these were always typically taxed at this high rate of 37, the highest tax bracket rate in the U.S., 37, that 38%, like in that, in that realm. And then in 2005, 2006, I remember, because this impacted us uh, as far as, they changed the rules where it was then more of like a capital gains, like it was more in the 20, 15 to 20% tax roll. Now, with the threat of that maybe going up, they're saying, okay, let's cash out now. A, B, another portion of it is the last couple of years, there was no touring with the pandemic going on. So they wanted it, they thought, hey, if I've extracted the most amount of value that I can from this music, why don't I get a cash out deal now? Maybe get into some sort of tech play investment because a lot of them are investing in other plays so that let's get the cash now let's invest in some other plays that might be more lucrative for me moving forward now with all this cash in hand and we'll talk about some of these larger funds they've they might have been overpaying the last couple of years some of these funds uh you know but the artists are looking at this like hey you know if we're we're gonna have lower tax rates uh these might be going away let's get that tax hit now versus like two three years from now and they're willing to overpay right now these funds potentially um and you know and so that we'll mitigate all of those things and our ability to tour earn revenue that was muted for a bit uh and these large companies can recoup their you know the, this revenue years down the road and you know the industry standard was before this huge influx in the last 10 years really was eight to 13 times annual earnings is what they would pay to in acquire an entire catalog now it was like around 10 to 20 right so it was they said okay let's definitely do this we get a you know 30 percent markup potentially let's go for it and that's exactly what was happening and then the other thing and you'll see in the case of prince let's say 
uh, estate planning. So he didn't have a will. It's known. Uh, I think it was primary wave that acquired his rights, but we'll go into some of that. They're the largest acquirer of music acquisition catalogs. They've had to, you know, it's easier to hand down cash to your heirs than it is to hand down music catalogs, the rights, the you know, the mechanics, the royalties. We'll get into all that. It gets incredibly tricky, especially if you're not well-versed. And usually, Prince's family is not like everyone else was a musician. Uh, you know, so then he had six heirs. Primary Wave acquired the rights, but they had to work, they had to work with all those six heirs because he didn't have a will in place, so it got incredibly tricky. You know, so then they had to like pay off debts for three of the heirs to then acquire their portion of the rights to help them with their own personal debts and all that. So instead of, or do what Bob Dylan did, 300 million sell off and I can hand that over, you know, he's not notoriously a great father from what we hear, Bob Dylan, uh, but he's a great songwriter from back in the day, right? Um, so, you know, let's see who he gives it to his money, but um, it's going to be easier to hand off cash than it would be to hand off mechanical royalties and Take that for a minute, then I can jump in from the fun side. Any input there, because I've been talking for a while. Yeah, and I think there's a lot to kind of break down within that, right? And you're, and you're spot on. You get to a certain point where it's based on what I do, there's a law of diminishing returns to it. Um, and certainly for some artists, like Bob Dylan, for example, right, who's actually kind of had two major transactions. There was the initial one, I think it was with Universal for between three three and 400 million. And then a short while later, he actually sold the masters for another 200 million. So he's somewhere between four and 600 million for his entire catalog. And to your point, he's not gonna be touring, probably not gonna be writing too much more music. So he's kind of tapped out on what, you know, he's gonna be able to do with it. Um, Bruce Springsteen, you know, estimated about, you know, $500 million for his catalog. Um, yeah. Sting was, you know, 300. So was Genesis, uh, you know, David Bowie, another one, you know, a posthumous sale, um, you know, 250. Right. So you have those and, and yes, yeah, some of them it's sold in full. Um, you know, uh, St- uh, Neil Young sold 50%. Right. And so yeah. you've got, those aspects to it, but it's also understanding what's actually being sold. And it's the reality is it's the ability to make money off of it. And for a lot of these artists, for the longest time, it was record sales, touring. That was it. Right. For the most part, you were done. And, you know, you and I grew up, one of the TV shows that I'm sure we watched was The Wonder Years. And what made that show is part of what made that show so successful is one, the Joe Cocker version of, you know, uh, get by with a little help. My friends is the, the opening to it. And then just a soundtrack of the show. That show had a very difficult time during that boom of home, you know, the, the box sets um, of getting the DVD box set of the wonder years. Cause when they signed those contracts with the artists, there wasn't a negotiation for like DVD box sets at home. And so mm, what's right. what's the wonder years without that soundtrack? But now we have to go song by song, figure out who owns the rights to it and get it. it, it disaster. And so there's so many new, new ways now to earn. There's you know streaming, there's touring, there's people doing covers. If you have, say, the, the composition rights, you know, and, and as you said, we'll get into that more later. And for particularly some of the older artists, and having the management team around it and everything else, it's like, do I want to be dealing with this shit? You know, yeah, so I think there's an element <laughs> to it of, you know, I, I don't want to manage that. Now, 
I do suspect, and, and again, this is an assumption. I know nothing about the deals that were arranged, but I would imagine there was also kind of some clauses put in. I don't imagine Bruce Springsteen would have sold his catalog without saying, but by the way, this will not be used in certain political advertisements. You know, I'm sure, you know, you might have artists that are like, I don't want my songs used in a liquor advertisement, right? Those types of things. Um, But managing, you know, all of those different facets, um, it's a lot. And you you, you, you briefly mentioned blockchain earlier. And I think that's going to be a really exciting area um, for tracking royalties and and song usage and things like that. So that's one side. What is really interesting to me, though, and, and you mentioned some of them, is the the Justin Timberlake, John Legend, um, you know, Bieber, uh, you know, and, and those who it's they're they're nowhere near the end of their careers, most likely, you know, hopefully, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, all of them are in- incredibly talented. And so looking at those artists where it's you kind of sell the early stuff and then, you know, what happens to the new stuff going forward. Um, again, if you're touring, how do the arrangements work? If you sing, if you perform a song that you sold the rights to, you know, and how are all those things negotiated? Um, I mean, it's, it's got to be a fascinating element of entertainment law for how that's all playing out. take a stab at that? Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. I, did I cut you off? Sorry. No, no, no. I was just saying, I mean, uh, to me, that would be, um, you know, a really interesting thing of, you know, because it's kind of like almost active residuals um, where there's there's still a new component while the original rights. Yeah, I, I would say that would be an interesting conversation to have with an entertainment lawyer. I was, we were thinking through this actually in class a couple, like last week, I think, and we were, and I think I was a little bit off in my assumption and I know because I have some new data. Let me plug, put a plug in the for, the funds perspective on this and then we'll jump back to this because I think this is more exciting. From the funds perspective, the reason they want to acquire these rights is A, they want diversification in their portfolios. You'll have basically music earns revenue in a bear and bull market. So boom, you know, that they can't say that about all of their asset plays. So like if you look at a company like Brooks, Brookfield Asset Management, which is the major player, like $2 billion they've parked with Primary Wave, which is the acquirer of some of the catalogs you just spoke about, their entire asset under management, AUM, is $750 or $725 billion. So $2 billion of that's it's not like it's nothing. It's not like nickel pocket money, but it is in, in relation to what they have. So they thought, let's diversify and take a chance on some of these things. Okay, uh, let's get back to that. And they had lower cost of capital last couple, you know, 15 years. So they said, let's take advantage of this and get into this new lucrative space. Now, back to what you were saying. We took an assumption as I was looking at, let's take a look at Justin Bieber. Why would he sell it? It was 200 million, right? Uh, that's the I estimate, think. yeah. I think, okay, so yeah, all of these are estimates because you'll hear, you'll see, I've seen two different numbers on all of these. Bob Dylan was three and 400 million. I saw both of those. Springsteen was the only one consistent at 500 mil, which they keep saying he's the largest, right? Um, so Dr. Dre has an interesting deal as well. We'll talk about that. But like, just say Justin Bieber, if he's, I'm assuming he's around 30 years old, and that means, let's say he's going to earn, he could earn streaming. Streaming will probably change five, 10 years from now, whatever the method is of distribution. But let's say you could, he could earn, if he's getting 200 mil over, let's say, let's make it even simpler, 20 years, that's 10 mil a year, and usually you pay a, pay a premium, so that means he's probably earning five to six mil a year on streaming, and they paid a premium of 10 mil a year to get acquire those rights now. So he's looking at the time value of money. I, 
that's the way we worked it out in class, just a few of us in a little ad hoc conversation. Then I look at, that's probably not the case. So Dr. Dre, uh, he, they say, guesstimate that he's earning around eight to 10 mil a year. But then this number is different in different locations. You can't find the true numbers, music industry. Uh, but so if, let's say if that, that's the case. So he's getting like 200 mil from, I think one at the UMG, one of them bought out that portion of his rights and they, another group, I think it was Skylark or something. I have it here somewhere. Uh, they, they acquired, oh, Shamrock for another 50 mil acquire like some rights to some of the other things he's done. So they're actually paying it a different premium. So it's not really easy to distinguish on premium. With him, he doesn't have that much of a social media presence probably compared to like a Justin Bieber. So they're paying on actual rights of the thing yeah. where Justin Bieber, he can add in that social media presence, you know, and everything else I've done that can, is a brand enhancer, a revenue, a monetizable strategy as well. So they're just paying a premium on an annual revenue base was what I walked away for the most part. Like, this is what you typically earn. We know there's going to be diminishing returns on that because I can see Dr. Dre hits 25, 30 years after they were produced are still crushing it, right? A lot of them are being sampled. Will a Justin Bieber track 30 years from now still be? I think that EDM album that he did with, um, that was actually a dope album. I liked some of the music on that one. I didn't know, I didn't get into Baby Baby or whatever the other stuff he was doing with Ludacris back in the day. But I got into that, that album in particular that, you know, that was kind of EDM-isk about five, six, seven years ago, whatever it was. But that could be playing. Yeah. So what do you think? I, I think there's also kind of the aspect, you know, like, like we talked about, of, of how everything is now going to end up being used. And, you know, to your point, you know, the presence that, that people have, the longevity, you know, of careers and, and, you know, navigating, you know, all of, of those different aspects, um, you know, what do they want their, their focus to be on? I also think there's a component to it of, because like you said, of social media, because of the democratization of media distribution, that's also happened. So for example, you know, Chance the Rapper, right? Back in the day, you know, you sent out your demo tapes, hoped a producer or someone would hear it, someone in A&R, they'd be like, hey, this person sounds good. They give you an upfront, they produce your album, they take the lion's share of the money to recoup their costs. Maybe you have a multi-album deal, right? We're going to talk about Taylor Swift and, you know, how that plays out, you know, because A&R is saying, well, you know, we need the vocal coaches, we need the producers, you know, all these things to make you a star. And... To get it into the Tower Records and Sam Goody and all of them, like you needed their distribution. So you really couldn't be big for the most part with without a label, with a handful of exceptions. Obviously, Jay Z, yeah. you know, is, is the perfect yeah. example of that. But Chance the Rapper is actually a good example. He was independent. And, correct. <laughs> and then right then for, comes for the someone like Chance the Rapper, who independent, released his own content online. Ends up winning a Grammy, I think, for album of the year or song of the year. Yeah, yeah. And it's like all of a sudden, <laughs> this was the you know, everyone was able to step back and say, "Do I really need a label?" When it comes to you know, you think Katy Perry needs a, a record label to you know, it's yeah, like, well, without us, you won't sell tickets. Bullshit. She doesn't need yeah. a record label. You know, she's got what like yeah. two hundred million people or whatever it is following on social media. You know, she puts even one announcement out. It's like the most correct. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Highest rated of all time, even over this Rihanna one and Dr. Dre one last year. Exactly. And, and so you, you look at that, you know, the element of, you know, the, the ivory tower has collapsed quite a bit. It's you can't do it without yeah. us. And it's like, no, 
people have proven that I can. And so I think there's also that, that aspect now of so many more opportunities to create and distribute music. And also whether it's streaming, whether it's, um, you know, actual album sales, whether it's touring right now, we're seeing the virtual tours. You look like, you know, Travis Scott, Marshmallow and others, you know, in the, in the metaverse and how will that play out? You know, to me, I'm interested in, you look at rocket man, Bohemian Rhapsody, you know, sadly, you know, the, the late Freddie Mercury, um, yeah. Elvis, right? All of those. What was awesome that movie, looking like behind the <laughs> scenes with, yeah. the, you know, where, where was the, how were the distribution and the, and the, the rights working for, for those? I mean, particularly, you know, with Elton John and, and Rocket Man, he's still alive. He's, you know, finished, he's doing his farewell tour. How do all those things play? You know, those things weren't in existence in the past. You didn't have Spotify in the past. You didn't have, you know, iTunes, right? All these different things that I think now there's so many more ways to monetize using um, using songs that just didn't exist in the past. You can, you can now recoup that money in different ways. And they know full well by buying the masters of Bob Dylan, whatever's the next, you know, zero to one after streaming, um, you know, yeah. neural implants yeah. of when you walk past a billboard, whatever it is. Yeah, fair. They want to capitalize. They want to be prepared for it. You you brought a couple excellent excellent points there. Let's just drill down on some of those. So the first one, let's say, um, let's put it out there. So, you know, they have complementary revenue generation schemes, you know, lines for an artist and for the record label. So an artist at the peak in their CD days, they're making a lot more money than they are from streaming right now. Let's put that out there. But like Greg said, you only had touring and music sales, record sales, basically, to as your main revenue generators. Now you're doing a lot more, right? So, but in streaming, they're still earning the record labels one million dollars per hour, right? Which is still muted compared to what they used to earn in the CD world. I mean, CD, think about it. It was just, hey, you know, we. I know this because I was in the world. We would put together twenty tracks. They would take two great ones and eight shitty ones and sell that. And they would take your next couple great and they said, let's say that for the next track, we're going to sell these two are going to be the drivers. They're the Trojan horse that and then everyone will buy for that. And the eight shitty ones are there as filler, killer and filler. That's where that term came from. So 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 that's nailing home uh, Greg's point there. Now, the second thing, let's talk about. So Brookfield Asset Management, um, who is the primary investor behind Primary Wave, who is acquired, I think, you know, the Bob Dylan's the world, Whitney Houston, Prince is in their world. Let's look at the Whitney Houston thing. So Brick, so Primary is partnered up with CAA, Creative Artist Agency, who has the talent rights to Whitney Houston's likeness and all that. The music now is under Primary. They're owned. They own the catalog. And then Brookfield was the capital supplier. So they had a strategic, they had a financial you know, provider, and then they had the strategic was CAA. They have a, docu- a biopic coming out on her. It's Whitney Houston's estate was probably not going to be able to get a movie made and the music done at at as broad a scale as these two CAA and primary partnering together could do for them. And then they could get their cut from that. So I think this makes sense. Hey, there it's a lot of there's a lot of consolidation happening and then they can build a better brand around an asset and then push that to the masses and monetize it. Right. So then that's the good stuff that's happening out of this. This, you know, all these acquisitions now. But then, you know, you you get your money up front as the artist and then you kind of then hope for the best that they, what they do with your, the biopic, they, she may or may not have, her estate may or may, may not have much say in it, right? You know, Prince was notorious for wanting control over everything in music, which I appreciated about him. 
but so that's that's what's happening. That, those are some good things coming out of this whole world. Like this biopic, I'm actually interested to see it. That Elvis movie, I saw it on the flight back from India, and you know that was an awesome movie. I, I grew up, I play guitar because of Elvis in fifty. When I was in, when I was 15 years old, we had to perform in front of the class, and I did an Elvis song, and that's when I learned how to play guitar for that, and then I went on with it. So, <laughs> thanks to him. But Elvis movie was amazing, right? And then you learn the bastardization of what that manager had done to Elvis in his career, and how much money he looted from Elvis and the estate. And you know, and I knew a lot of this stuff too. Have you seen the movie? Yes, yeah, I saw the movie. Incredible um, movie, man. Yeah, and it, it, there were elements of the story, of course, that you know we all knew about, you know, and. Um, you know, and, and those facets, but I think also looking at the influence that he had, but the, the soundtrack, what I thought was great about the movie is it was not just Elvis songs and yeah. it was not just, you know, fifties, sixties, seventies when it came to instrumentals, you know, if you, you, when you watch the movie, you listen to the background score and yeah, you know, it, it's, it's, it's fun to watch. Um, and you're right. What was done, you know, with, with the Colonel and, you know how those royalties. Uh, I mean, it was it was exploitative. Is it would be the nice way to phrase it. Um, yeah, and you nice know, and, and looking how you know how that was done, and I think you know that brings up an interesting point. And and you know, like I said, we'll get to to Taylor Swift and and that saga. But you really didn't. I also think you really didn't hear about this side of the business. I think partially because again, the five record labels basically that existed kept a tight lid on it, and if you spoke out, you were blackballed. You were done. The yeah. one exception, I think, was the whole Michael Jackson, Paul McCartney, Beatles songs, right? When Michael Jackson <laughs> said, you know, I have all this money, how do I invest? And Paul McCartney says, owning the masters to um, to popular songs. And Michael Jackson went out, and went out and bought a bunch songs? of Beatles stuff. And it was like, ooh. He bought the entire catalog, right? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it was the entire Four. catalog, but it was a a whole chunk of it. A major chunk of it. Yeah. And, but it was, and guess how much that price tag was less than $50 million back in eighty in the mid-80s, right? And it's probably valued at a billion right now. Yeah. And to my understanding, I think <laughs> I think McCartney ended up finding a way to, to acquire yeah. a lot of it back, thankfully. Um, you know, it's, it's back where it belongs, in my opinion. So, you know, that whole aspect, you really didn't hear about it until there was a big dust-up. You know, Jay-Z, again, as an example, you know, where it's, you know, this, you know, what is this, a fucking free concert? Um, or, you know, whatever the line was when they, when they asked him and he was like, I'm going to do this on my own. But, you know, now again, like I said, the democratization of media distribution, you know, Chance the Rapper being the perfect example of that. People like Katy Perry, who it's the, I don't need a label to be able to sell tickets. I have 200 million social media followers. I announce here's a tour. Um, and, you know, again, Ticketmaster Live Nation, we'll see what happens with that coming up. Um, you know, the, yeah. the Taylor Swift debacle, but. Yeah, I think all those aspects, it's an exciting time, I think, for media and entertainment in general. Um, you know, we saw it in movies with Blair Witch. We saw it in, in music with people like Chance the Rapper. Um, that, you know, if you have the talent, um, you know, you, you can go out and do it without the, the big players having to yeah. be involved. And, and that's, that's exciting. And I think we'll see a lot of things um, you know, Gangnam Style is a perfect example of that. Without YouTube, that yeah. would not have been anything. Justin Bieber was found yeah. on YouTube by, and you know, Usher signed him. You know, 
It's really and, interesting. And Scott Braun managed him, right? Scott, he comes up a lot. Scott Braun in this uh, conversation. Oh, yeah, 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 Scooter, yeah, yeah, yeah. Scooter Braun is, uh, is, is going to be Scooter an Braun. interesting you, you know, part of this. But I also think if, um, if you've seen the documentary, uh, don't, I think it's it Don't Stop Believing or whatever it is, where, where Journey found in the Philippines the lead singer, the new lead singer. Oh, yeah. for, like, it's a great Sounds documentary. Like it. it's, oh, it, and it's, it's fascinating to watch. It's brilliant. Wait, there's, there's a, I didn't know there was a documentary. Is it called Don't Stop Believing? I think it is. I, I'll check it out because I like that group. Oh, I love, so the, I love the Steve documentary And this Filipino singer sounds yeah. just like him. I know, but it's eerie. Did you see the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Because that, that was when they had it in Brooklyn. My, my, my neighbor went at the time. It was like 2016, 17, I don't know, 18, something like that. It was before the pandemic. And they went to it. That's the one time they had the Hall of Fame induction. And that's when... NWA was inducted as well, but they weren't allowed to perform, I think, or they just didn't perform. Journey performed. Steve Perry went up to receive, you know, speak, but he wasn't able to perform. The Filipino singer, and the Filipino singer sounds exactly like him, but he's very boring to watch. He's not a front man, in my opinion. He just walked, you know, you got these great lyrics. You could be rocking out the stage. And he's just walking back and forth, singing the lyrics like it's a wedding. Watch the <laughs> you know documentary because that comes okay, up will. in it. Um, okay, and, and so it's interesting to hear that now. But yeah, definitely. Um, I want you to take a look. I want you to get into Taylor Swift. So I, I, can we can we lead up to? Can I give you a quick lead up? Like you were saying, and this will show you how the control has shifted. Back in the day, exactly what Greg had said. You didn't hear about these little flare ups that happened between the artists and the label and all that as much. George Mike. Okay, there's one gentleman at the at the center stone of George Michael, Mariah Carey, Ricky Martin, Michael Jackson. And I'm going to get canceled for this. Actually, he's, I think he's retired. But Tony Matola, Tommy Matola, sorry. He was an executive basically at Sony. And he brought a lot of these folks. He helped curate a lot of the careers for these four. And they challenged him on a lot of things. They said they wanted more rights, which we're, which we're going to get, which leads up to the Taylor Swift conversation. We want, we want more control of our rights. Uh, we've made you hundreds of millions of dollars and I'm seeing a fraction of that. I should be seeing more. We all could still be, this would be, still be a mutually beneficial relationship if you further enhance my pockets because I've done so much for your label. Tony Matola literally crushed their careers, all four of them. None of them came back. Michael Jackson kind of came back after, but, and Mariah Carey is actually the one that did kind of come back. Uh, after Tony Matola, Tommy Matola kind of crushed them. So you don't mess with like the big wigs. Now it's a little different. We get into the Taylor Swift thing because uh, you know that story well. Uh, give, give me some of that. Yeah, so I mean, the the long and the short of it, and you know, anyone who followed Taylor Swift on social media or, or heard it through the news, um, you know, the label that that she was with um, was up for sale, and yeah, I think it ended up it was around three hundred million dollars. Big machine. Um, yeah. Yep, uh, down in, in uh, Nashville, up for sale, and. Um, Scooter Braun and, and uh, I imagine some investment partners bought it. I think it was something like $300 million, which in reality, you were buying it for Taylor Swift, yeah. right? And there was bad, <laughs> to, to take it, there was bad blood um, between Scooter Braun and Taylor Swift. Yeah. You know, there was social media beef and, and, and all sorts of stuff. And she would, she went public and basically said, um, this is BS. My songs are being taken from me. And of all people, it's this guy. Um, you know, don't buy the albums, mm. that kind of thing. You know, according to her, an offer had been made of, um, you know, 
I think there was like five albums and for every new one that you record, you get, you know, that we get a cut of, you'll get one of your albums back. So after five more albums, you have your full catalog, right? All of this. Then there was also a thing of, well, we'll do X if you don't remaster, meaning re-record these songs, you know, in a set period of time. And she was like, screw that. I'm looking forward to doing that. And all these kind of things. Now, it's also important to mm. note that, um, and again, you know, the composition rights, performance rights, you know, broadcast rights, et cetera, for these things. I mean, it's not that she mm-hmm. could not perform them um, in some scenarios, but I think it was the American Music Awards. While this whole thing was going on, she couldn't perform her songs for that particular award show. And yeah. so this whole big dust up um, with it and... You know, the, the reason I read up on this is I, I was teaching a class on, on media innovation and my students at the time, you know, documentary filmmakers, I mean, super creative, super talented, um, you know, brilliant students. And I knew they'd be going on to create some incredible IP. And this was a conversation about, like, you got to make sure you own your shit. And, you know, so... The production of it, yeah. make sure that you have control over your intellectual property and, you know, you get to control what what happens to it and profit from it. Um, you know, when you know, if you write the screenplay for a pilot TV show and you sell them your pilot, like you're basically you, you got your money. We own this now going forward. You, you really need yeah. to know your stuff. And so as we got into this conversation, it was it was just interesting because it's well what are the options for it and digging into it a bit more so for example like her father um had some sort of relationship with the board of the label so it's like how did she not know that scooter braun and that investment firm were tied to it if her father was potentially involved in the decision making of it if it was only i mean in my quote only in air quotes 300 million dollars it's you couldn't come up with your own group to just buy the label, you know, so all these interesting debates that can happen again, I have no purview into any of that. I think Taylor Swift is incredibly talented. She's business savvy. I don't think anyone has done more to kind of set the standard for fan engagement the way that she has. She is brilliant. I, I, I I just think it's incredible what she's done. Um, and I, I hope it's authentic um, I really do. You know, it, you, we often hear, you know, that's the, what's the phrase? There's nothing worse than meeting your heroes. You know, don't ever meet your heroes. Well, she's not a hero of mine. I would, yeah. I would hate to hear yeah. that <laughs> this is, you know, some front, but I, I, I don't think it is. And so that whole aspect to it, and she went on, of course, to produce more albums. And when she signed with her next label, and again, much like the sale of, you know, these assets for 100, 200, 300, 500 million dollars. It's all based on estimates. But um, apparently with her next contract, it was the, oh, I'll produce it, you know, but she will still own the masters. She will have the rights to it. But the record label knows that the risk is very low with her. They're still going to make a boatload of money, even while giving up things they normally wouldn't give up. That's great. So I, 
like you, I, well, maybe less. So I've, I'm a big fan of hers now that I know how business savvy she is. She's a phenomenal businesswoman, right? And so, of course, I don't know a lot of, I know a lot of her hits, of course, like Shake It Off and all these things. I know about all of them, but I didn't, I'm not, that's not the music I'm going to gravitate towards, right? Uh, generally. But then when I started learning about her, I just became a big fan of her as a businesswoman. And it was, it's incredible. And then her folk guitar, so she plays guitar obviously, right? She's a great lyricist. So she put out during the pandemic because when she started funding her own, less upfront cost to put out an acoustic guitar song with great singing lyrics and, and simpler play. So she put out a couple of those albums during the pandemic and they're really well written. I didn't know. So a buddy of mine said, hey, you might like this. I said, Taylor's lute? You know, because I'm a I'm an urban head generally, but we'll, we'll get into that in a moment. But I love a lot. I love every style of music, but then I got into some of her acoustic music and it, it made sense to me. Now, her dad was was a stockbroker. He was there day one when they negotiated that deal with Big Machine Records, I think. And he said, I, not only do I want to sign this deal with you, I want to buy in. So that he made out in the deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and he, he, so, very idiotic of them, they didn't bring a lawyer to the table when they signed the deal. Like, what are the future implications of what I signed today? So I think she was 10 or 15 or 12. She was very young, 12, 15 years old when she signed the deal. So she clearly doesn't know. She just wants to sing. And her dad should have known, hey, let's bring a lawyer to the table before we sign anything. And then when a Scooter Braun comes along 10 years forward and wants to buy this out, what does that mean for me, right? Um, clearly, they didn't know that she was going to be as big a star, but still, you always bring a lawyer to the table for any deal you sign, especially with the music and film industry. Let's just, you know, put that out there. Um, so that's that was day, that was piece one of it. Now, when it came around, they did hold the rights to her saying, hey, she was, I want my, I want out. I'm your major, I'm your only pretty much money maker. They had other stars. There were no one near her. Yeah. And that's correct, but she signed the contract, so it was very difficult to negotiate out of that. It's cool that she recreated that. I heard, I read in some, maybe it was, I heard on some podcasts, it was Kelly Clarkson that on social media said, um, why don't you just re-record them and slightly change them and then you get to retain And that's, that's how she did it. Uh, she, yep. she thought of that idea. She was like, okay, I did it, and it worked out well for her, I, I guess. The, the new ones are streaming pretty well. Um, it's exciting. The cool thing about her, she's probably – so Katy Perry you brought up, Rihanna. Rihanna's a billionaire, so that's different, but she became outside of music. That was in the fashion line and all, all that space, so that's kind of where there's interesting money because there's crazy margins in that world uh, relative to music. Uh, but it's that brand-encompassing thing that you said. Taylor Swift is the only one of those young male or female artists who didn't go into like other investment investors. She didn't go into like, let me get on American Idol. Let me go into this, um, open up a, I'm not knocking any of those. Usually people pivot or they, you know, they bring more things into their portfolio. She just double, triple, quadruple down on writing lyrics and great music and it worked. So I applaud her for that. Just sticking to what got her here. And crushing it. And she's probably, outside of Rihanna, she's probably her, you know, net you know net valuation on her as a brand is probably higher than like a Katy Perry type. And Katy Perry is phenomenal in her own right, right? Uh, so it's, it's great. I think she's probably, her catalog will probably go for a significant amount. She could probably cross that billion dollar mark, I'm assuming. I think if she goes on a tour, this like I think the tour is already out there apparently because the ticket ticket master thing, which you'll get into. But yeah, so she'll cross a billion in you know uh, net net worth. I think at some point, I mean, it, it, you know, and considering she's just double triple down on the music space and not didn't go into other things to increase her you know personal net worth, which is amazing. So kudos to her. Yeah, and and I, and it's interesting you say that you know because you have a handful of people that I think that have 
done that really well. I mean, and truly leaving their field. I mean, if you look at, you know, uh, Sean Combs, you look at Jay-Z, right? A lot of it is still tied to the music and entertainment space. Um, you know, Jay-Z, of course, I mean, at this yeah. point, the number yeah. of celebrities that have an alcohol line, you know, I think George Clooney in many ways kind of um, really showed the potential of, of that. You know, and then The Rock has it and uh, uh, yeah. Ryan Reynolds, like everybody. And Ryan Reynolds, by the way, talk about topic of a podcast. All superstars. Like, yeah. uh, j- doing a podcast about simply on what he has created blows my mind. Um, so, yeah. Oh, we should do that. Yeah. So I love that guy. He's um, hilarious. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so uh, looking at those different aspects of kind of what they've created and what they've you know, generated through who they are. I think, you know, in addition to Taylor Swift, someone like Adele, um, you know, would I'd kind of put them in that same category of just such a standout in the music industry, but you haven't seen them dilute their brand and potentially risk it in in other ways. Um, kind of back to that, the original topic that I think um, is also worth pointing out that, you know, all that glitters isn't gold when it comes to buying someone's catalog. There's a bit more safety in some ways of buying David Bowie's or buying, you know, uh, James Brown, you know, those types of things because they're dead. And for the most part, you know, with some exceptions, for the most part, we know about the scandals, that kind of thing. Similar to buying art, once they're dead, it's like, okay, you know. We're not going to find out that so-and-so is a pedophile or, you know, killed somebody, right? right? Those types of things. So when, you know, Johnny Cash, we knew all the scandals to it. And so when, you know, that catalog was sold along with Jerry yeah. Lewis's, um, and I think it was only for like $30 million or something, there there are some where it's like, wait a second, that had to go for more. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. Johnny Cash and Jerry Lee Lewis was, wow. was sold um, uh, Sun Records. I mean, Johnny Cash is a superstar. Jerry Lewis is a superstar, but he's yeah. kind of creepy, clearly. Yeah. Very cl- oh, creepy. Yeah. Um, and again, talk about, you know, you had Walk the Line, and then uh, there was the, the Jerry Lee Lewis one, um, you know, as well. That uh, was it, Dennis Craig, yeah. I think, was in. Great Balls of Fire or whatever. Yeah. Right? Um, and so, you know, you have catalogs. Are sold, but there is a risk in buying someone's catalog when they're young and still alive. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, Bieber had the whole thing. What Didn't he, like, smoke pot and get a speeding ticket or whatever? Yeah. So be it. But you might... in a bucket or something. Yeah, yeah. you might own... Sold a monkey. <laughs> yeah, you might own a catalog, right, of someone's entertainment, and all of a sudden they pull a Michael Vick. And all of a sudden it's like... Or what if you had bought Kanye's? Yeah. Like if you had yeah, bought yeah. Kanye's back catalog. <laughs> oof. Yeah. Right? You know, is there coming back from that? I don't know. Look at Michael Jackson. But you know what? But, I bet that's going to be worth a lot of money. If he cleans I, up his brand, he's crazy. But I think it's going to, like, if Michael Jackson is going to go for, they're saying it's valued at about eight, nine hundred mil for just half of the catalog, 50% for his estate. So, uh, yeah. So you, you, I think people will overlook it for the music because yeah. they'll look at where else they can, what they can place long term. You know, people 20 years from now, 10 years from now may not look at what he did, right? Uh, Allegedly. 30, 40 years from now. Who knows? And, yeah, you, know, you got you got to make sure you know you don't want the estate yeah, suing you allegedly. Yeah. But you also look at what if you had bought R. Kelly's? Yeah, you know what I'm saying. So there, it's not that there isn't hey. a risk hey. to this. All right, um, <laughs> like so, 
you know, I, I think that's an important element to highlight. This is not a you know guaranteed golden ticket. Um, you know, you you want to make the R. Yeah. Kelly golden shower joke to go with the golden ticket? A tool, you're getting old. I I, I serve that one up to you, man. But I pulled back. I've done it early, so I'm not doing yeah. it. <laughs> right. So I think you have that aspect to it as well that comes into play of while it looks so simple, you know, you never know what might end up happening. Um, if I can kind of pick your brain on where finance, music, and technology come into play is I'm really waiting and it's going to be like Radiohead or someone that will do it, where they turn around and if before releasing an album, they turn around and say, you can buy shares in my upcoming album and you know, using blockchain or whatever to have an accurate ledger to track and let your fans own a portion mm. of the album and what comes from it. Dude, sign me up. I will absolutely put some money into that. Um, it's happening. Okay, so so walk walk us through how, how does that it's model happening. work? Is it working? Is it functioning? Who who's doing it? Are they worth listening at? So we're looking at a bunch of these. Yeah, I I I love the whole space. Let let me and let me put a nail in what you said before because that was a great point. You said you know these people who are deceased or maybe they've stopped performing, so they can't ruin their brand anymore. Right, we pretty much know everything about them. So when we go to acquire, so when someone, it's similar to like any other deal, like art, right? It's you know Picasso's worth more than it now than it was you know a couple. Well, he was around still until like the seventies, eighties or something like that, right? So or Da Vinci, all these folks. So let's go back even further. You can then, if you have ownership of that entire brand, you can build a brand at, at your own peril. Basically, you have no other influence on, you know, influence to ruin, ruin it. So like, if you don't have to work directly with the artist, then you can take that brand exactly where you want to. So you can push without any tug of, tug of war. Cause that's what happens to the artist usually. Like, I don't want to be known this way and my legacy is this. So it's easier when you don't have to deal with the artist. I, I just, that's kind of what it is. So that's why these are going at a premium, especially when there's no artist to have to deal with. Uh, Prince was notoriously difficult. Prince, let's give him credit. He was one of the first that brought streaming to the world. He was, hey, I don't want to go, when he was having that whole, when he went through and he yeah. became known as that sign, uh, whatever, the right? The artist formerly known as, yeah. He started downloading. He said, buy, don't buy it from the record label, buy it straight from my website. Yeah, buy it straight from my website. He was the first one that kind of just started doing streaming at scale. He's, he was a tech, tech savant as well, right? So, you know, he would have all these huge parties at, at uh, Paisley Park. I know some friends that used to go. It, literally until like he would just announce it on Twitter for three minutes. Whoever saw it would show up and he was, they would just party and play and do kind of, you know, and play music and do all kinds of stuff. So like Madonna even in some podcast was talking about that. I remember she, that's how they would find out about what was happening. And... So what's happening in the future now? Like you just said, should I set up the rights and royalties thing and then we get into it? Yeah, like, exactly. Um, I think we need to do a bit of an overview of how this point system works and, and okay. how's everyone getting their, their beak wet. Yeah. Let's start it with a personal story for this whiskey hue when we were coming together, us three. So this whole idea for this podcast started, I remember, you know, initially where I used to live, we had a, we had a bunch of young dads with young kids and we want, needed to get out once a week. Like our wives would let us in the clubhouse. We just meet there. We bring a scotch bottle and we say, Hey, this, let's daddy scotch club. And we said, I said, our conversations are phenomenal. It's exactly what you and I are talking about. Sports, business, entertainment, everything. And I said, we should just make this a podcast. We didn't do it. 
then come forward, Clyde, Anthony, and I, we like, hey, let's do this. We talk about whiskey and business all the time and tax and venture. Let's just put this into a podcast. Okay, so we did. Now, let's come up with theme music. I thought, easy. I used to write a ton of music for a bunch of folks. I have 50% of my share. I have the writer's share, and they have publishing. That's the deal I had signed with this group that Apple Records that had done it for me. Chesky, Apple, that entire umbrella. I, there was a particular song that had the theme of what we look at, very similar to what we have now. And I went to them and said, hey, I would like to just use this. They said, okay, cool. Pay for it all up front. And then six to nine months, 12 months now, when the royalty distribution comes, you'll get your 50% back. Okay, and the price was going to be pretty high. I'm like, first of all, hey, cool. That's cool if you're charging someone else that. But it was me. I'm the one that worked on this song for three, four, five weeks, right? There's no like kind of, under, you know, some dibs I can get on this. Nope. So that was the deal. So I'm like, okay. And I think it became a thing like we're not going to spend thousands of dollars for this one 30-second snippet, right? So at the time, what's the, uh, Little Nas X was really popular with that Old, old Town Road. old town Country Road whatever song what it was called. And he said, I bought this beat on this website for like 50 bucks. So I said, oh, shit, maybe I should go do that. So I went on to some, the same website, and I just kept looking, and I went and hours and hours of going through catalogs to find something incredibly similar to the music that I had put together, and I bought it. And here we are. So that's how it works. Like, So let me get it. And I wrote this out so I make sure I don't because it gets very tricky. Uh, so I want to make sure I say this properly in the rights and royalties component. Right there, mechanical royalties, performance royalties, sync royalties, print royalties. Print's boring. We won't talk about that as much. Let's split it into the writing and publishing, which I just gave you an example of. Writing, me, I wrote that music, right? So it refers to the rights of creating and recording that song, that music. And it's typically held by the songwriter right, who receives a portion of all royalties generated by that song whenever it's played somewhere. So I, I wrote the song, the company that, the agency that I was working with that would go and place it, they become the publisher because they, the, they have all those relationships that I did not have at the time. Hey, I can go place this in shitty CW shows, or I shouldn't say that, they're great, they're great money makers. Uh, CSI New York, whatever it was at the time, right, they were going and placing it, I didn't have those relationships, they did. So I said, okay, cool, take that 50-50. If I was Prince, I might have gotten an 80-20 split, 80 in my favor, 20, I'm not Prince, I'm 50-50, that's where I'm, I'm going. So, and then publishing rights, they get 50% up front. So whatever that fee is, it's right there. And they get to, as a publisher, distribute and monetize a song. And all those rights are held by the publisher. Now, royalties are, there's a sync deal. So let's say now we have the 50-50 split. That's the rights of it. Uh, I, they gave me a fee to make the song and then I make the, and then I, we own, that's how the rights are split. Now let's go and get, make money on this. So they go and they place it places and that's a sync deal. Uh, CBS, you have the right, or wherever CSI New York was playing at the time, you have the right to play a full song. Uh, for so-and-so minutes in this episode and he'll get residuals forever. You know, it's playing in syndication in New Zealand right now, so I'm still getting checks on it every three months. Cool. Uh, so that that money comes in. They, you know, so that's the sync deal with the external party. Now it comes in and now the publisher and the writer, myself and this record company uh, agent, they, now we split that whatever comes in 50-50. So they're still getting 50 on me and I'm getting the other 50 and that's how it works, simply. So there's that, I just talked about this publishing, writing, and the sync deal. So that's kind of how it works. Now, what's happening is, like you said, uh, what's the group you just mentioned? Um, who started? Uh, damn, you just mentioned the rock group, and they're they're Radiohead. Radiohead, thank you. So they're the they were one of the first that said, "Hey, not on the blockchain, but they were one of the, I think eight ten years ago they said, let's just give our music directly to the people or something like that to our fans." I think they were one of the first that did it. Right? And if you like it, pay for it. 
they had done that was it kid a i think was the one where they were like pay what you think it's worth right right so now if you're on the blockchain so these are business models we're seeing and it's similar in film we just talked about in class on wednesday night uh what you're seeing is let's say make it simple drake has a song he wants to build community around this song right make it simple if i get a song and people have ownership in that song forever or however long then then they'll want to make that song popular push it to their fans as well. So you build a community. It's all around the NFT blockchain space. That's kind of how we're seeing. So these are, this is one model we're looking at right now. Essentially, Drake will have 50, you set this up with any kind of covenants. Okay, you can do it on the blockchain where Drake will put up, let's say 25 to 50% of the song. And us as fans could say, I'm going to put a thousand or 5,000, 10,000, take a certain amount of ownership. You put on the blockchain, it's transparent recorded forever in perpetuity. And then whatever, whenever this plays, you can, uh, you'll make money on it. Five, 10, 15, 20 years from now, you're going to get it paid. It's going to be in crypto until that evolves. You want it in fiat currency. So you're going to have to play on those. So there's going to be a lot of covenants. Now, way that I'm looking at it, okay, that's a straight contract. That's a smart contract. How can we up the tiers and make tiers in this? Okay, I would, if I was looking at it, the kind of feedback I gave this company, I said, okay, how about instead of for five years, how about for the first five years, you charge X amount to be an owner. And then after that, they might see a diminishing return if they just, you know, uh, or, but they, but there's still, we will be some sort of return, but we can market the first three to five years. Hey, there's gonna be a, the most capital will be up front. So you pay extra to be up in there or something to have it in the first years and then longer. But if you're only going to be in a certain amount, it's going to cost you this much. So you charge them more for how much, how much the time, uh, lapse. And then if they build enough of an audience and send enough people to it and we can mark that somehow say, okay, my community through my social media influence, I brought this many people to listen and stream this song and you made this much money then we can further enhance their kind of residual payment type of thing. And it's all tracked. We can reduce that middleman, middle woman, whoever you want to call them, which is the BMGs. And so weren't you at BMG for a while? Were you at BMG? Was that you? Yeah, I worked for a division of, of Bertelsmann, which, you know, Bertelsmann Music Group. Um, you know, we, I was in the e-commerce side, but yeah, the I BMG I Entertainment. I have an odd memory. And that um, was when we were in, yeah. in Dennis's class, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, and it's, and to the point again, you going back to the earlier when we talked about, you know, Chance the Rapper, where now all of a sudden it's, you can circumvent those gatekeepers. Um, you know, I, I think another aspect to, to bring up um, as a content creator, whether you're a musician, whether you're a screenwriter, you know, whatever it might be, having a strong understanding of where my business value is and what IP I should be protecting, because yeah. it isn't always going to be necessarily your music, right? Um, and for instance, you know, like the NIL in sports, you know, with college sports, you know, name, name, image, likeness, the, you know, you might have only as so long as a playing career, but your likeness and the ability to market that and yeah. build, you know, for, you look at, you know, gymnasts, for example, um, Olympic swimmers is another example of yeah. the money you're going to make is not from your sport. My favorite use case with this is the Grateful Dead. Yeah. And with the Grateful Dead, you could go to a dead concert, you'd record the tape, and everyone shared those. They didn't give a damn about the piracy of their music. But <laughs> the Grateful Dead incorporated as a company, you know, little known fact. So they made mm. a business entity that was their band, 
and the dancing bears and the skeletons, their merchandise, the amount that they put into time-wise and effort-wise to protect that brand, because that's where the money came from. The music, they'd go on tour, the deadheads, we're not going to stop you wow. from, you know, all that. No, the merchandise, oh, like a hawk. And that's so cool. they realized where the money was going to be made and what they needed to protect, and they did. And so, you know, I think that's also, you know, that's the other amazing. aspect to it of, you know, why you need to understand the business that you're in. You know, you are a brand as a performer. It's not just your music. It's who you are and people who do it well on social media and you see people who do it poorly. You know, as a musician, I don't think anyone would doubt Kanye's brilliance as a persona. Yeah. Yeah. What's happened. Um, it, it's sad to see. I think the backlash is well-deserved, but I would never wish ill on anyone. And to me, this person needs help, but that help, you know, that need for help is not an excuse for what he's done. Um, yeah. But that management of your brand, yeah. the way, again, like Taylor Swift has done and, you know, the way that other artists have, have done it, I think is just so important. Um, athletes too, you know, like, you know, Giannis is a, a great yeah. example, you know, of that, um, who have managed their persona it's and who they are. too good to be true. Of course. I don't know yes. if you saw the, when he interviewed, uh, the interview with um, uh, Hassan Minhaj on Daily Show, you know, earlier this week, uh, he was on. I and you were like, damn it. Yeah. You know? Um, Snippet. And so I think all those aspects of, if you are a content creator, your name is your brand. And you are beyond the content you create. And yeah. I think that's so important. And just think about this as, this as this moves towards Web3. Careful what you put out there. It's going to be there forever. And then curate your own persona. Put out the best of you, like all the good. Put out all of you, but what you're comfortable being out there. And then curate that story. What does that value add to someone else? Like how are, also you, how are you trying to enhance society and yourself and the people around you with what you're putting out there? Yeah. And, you know, if you want to take on a cause, take on a cause. But I mean, it's going to be very easy to see what's authentic and what's not. Um, and you will inevitably be yeah. found yeah. out. Now, I think in some ways, it's, I wouldn't say it's easier now to be the quote unquote authentic self. Um, but I think the fan base is understanding and accepting of it. Um, and those who are going to hate you, we're going to hate you anyway. And so I think, you know, that yeah. facet of, you know, you had athletes who, you know, athletes being in the closet and, you know, musicians who hid their accent or, you know, uh, you know, code switching and, and, and those things, um, you know, many still unfortunately have to do that. But I think there's an element of, um, being able to, uh, to to kind of have that broader appeal, um, and you know, hopefully it, it stays and increases. Not that it hasn't come with backlash. You know, Harry Styles. There's been, um, you know, a lot of backlash about you know his persona um, and is it authentic or not. Um, hmm. And so, you know, I think being you know wary of it, but you know, hopefully more and more we're going to see diversity of thought, diversity of audience, you know, diversity of content. Um, again, going back to Ryan Reynolds, I think the work that, that he and Blake Lively are doing to, you know, have broader representation in entertainment, um, Superstars, should be commended. 
And uh, yeah, I think bright, bright years ahead. Yeah. And, and again, to the comment earlier in the conversation, the democratization of media distribution, there are more ways than ever to get your content yeah. out into the public space. And all it takes is an usher seeing you on YouTube or Gangnam Style or was it Natu Natu? What was the one that I sent you? The other? That I've watched that yeah. thing like seven times. I don't yeah, know yeah. why that thing is addictive, yeah. but my God, I've watched this. I'm going to watch that movie. So my wife and I are going to finally watch the movie. It's it's RRR. It's an Indian movie that's been nominated for an Oscar, or at least the dance, the music has, and that song is going nuts. Hey, we've had better music uh, dances than that, but hey, they take this one. We'll I take. I don't it. know uh, why it's, it it's is catchy. You showed it, it to me. So that's so addictive. Thing. I didn't even know. It's it's yeah, it's it's catchy song, and I and I don't understand. It's from South India, so I don't understand the language, right? It's. I don't, it's, I'm from North India, so it's funny. It's a different language than I speak. There's like 200 languages there, right? Uh, but it's, it's catchy as hell. So I'm with you as far as understanding the lyrics. I'm like, I don't know what they're saying, but the cool, it's cool. It's energetic. Um, so RRR, all these opportunities, all these movies that we just talked about, all these opportunities. So sync deals, there's so much that you could still do. Movie, film, video games is going to be a huge hot space. And it already is. Right. That's an easy six figures income. So you can earn it. Like if I went back into this world full time, I could earn like I could do decently well still. Um, I just I like this more this space. And just, so you know, it takes about for each three minute song that you hear. Now it's about two twenty. Used to be three in my day, uh, about 10, 12 years ago it is three minute song. It takes three to four weeks to perfect that song. You're working on multiple songs at a time. Uh, but then it takes, you know, even the drum beats. It sounds like one easy thing, but it, it, there's like about probably 10 to 15, 20 layers of just percussion, right? And then the instrumental beds, and then you're singing it, you're singing. So that's going to be another couple layers of tracks. So there's, it takes about three, four weeks to perfect it to get it right where it should be that you know will have appeal. Uh, so th- there's a lot that goes into this music. So appreciate the people that are behind, behind the scenes who are working on it that help you hopefully groove your head a bit. Um, what, what are your go to styles? I know we got to start wrapping up here. What are your, what's your go to music style generally? You know, I, I gotta admit, I I'll focus a bit more. If you're a good storyteller, um, I enjoy your music, and so that covers a broad range. So that could be Bob Dylan, that like could it. be the Beatles, that could be Billy Joel, that could be Ed Sheeran, that could be Eminem. I think Eminem is a storyteller. I mean, you look at listen to songs like Stan. Yeah. My God, it, it's complicated, yeah, but it weaves this thread. So if you're a good storyteller. I, I think of TV shows the same way. I think of movies the same way. But music to me, you know, Beatles, the the Stones, uh, you know, Don McLean's American Pie, um, you know, Elton John, and you know, just being able to tell these stories, um, I, I think to me. And when you have an album, I mean, I'm I'm not the diehard music fan, right? You know, the, the CEO of my company, uh, you know, Gregory Butler. I mean, he is a music encyclopedia. Uh, yeah. Conversations with him just blow me away. And, you know, he's, he's brilliant when he it comes to that. He and I work with similar people, too. Yeah, yeah, he, he and I exactly. Work with yeah, he's, he's from your universe. And, you know, so you have people like that. that, that they'll see things, they'll yeah. hear things that I just won't. But once in a while, you're able to hear an album mm. that you understand why the order of the songs were the way they were. You know, what the, um, is it Future Sex Love Sounds, the Timberlake yeah. album? That's like your night out. It, it starts off, these are the songs yep. you're listening yep. to as you're getting ready to go out, and then your boys pick you up, you go, you know, you're out, and then the night winds down. Like, it follows the arc of your night out. I'm like, and even I picked up on that, right? And so I think those are the things that I'm looking yeah. for. And that's when you say Taylor Swift, she's a great storyteller. 
Um, you know, I never got into country music when it was too twangy. Yeah, big time. But you listen to some country songs and it's like, that's a great story. You know, whether it's Goodbye Earl, which is hysterical to, to so, listen to. Dude, they write some good, you know. But, like, yeah, you I don't know a lot that. of the music. Fantastic. But some of that shit's pretty good. I mean, like, some of that, it's great storytelling, you know. And I've worked with some Nashville producers before. But, you know, they're, they're, they write great stories. That's one thing about country. And it's simple, simplistic. You can, you can, it's accessible to most people, right? They, they don't jargon it up with too much crap and anyone can uh, understand it. I, I appreciate it. I would, if I was to look at my music library about 10 years ago, it would have been 80% urban. Now it's around 70%, but I'm a good, so I like urban R&B and hip hop because I grew up doing that and singing it and playing it and then produce. I had a career in the music industry and that's what I was doing, but I'm a good, I like a good rock. I mean, a concert I saw before the pandemic was Guns N' Roses and that was a dope concert. I had Jay-Z and Beyonce take us at, at, at MetLife Stadium, and I we ended up selling them to a friend last minute because we, we just couldn't make it, and it was going to be pouring. She said, I'll take them. She went. It did pour. They they cut the show halfway, put them inside because it was lightning, and then they brought them back out. And she said, after the rain came in, it went. It was a bomb-ass show. It's, they still crushed it. So, like, these are the kind you know, I'm into all that stuff. And then, but lately, there's a show my kids watch, Family Reunion, Fuller House on Netflix, you know, like, you know, when they're doing their thing. Uh, there's a new show with Catherine McPhee. It's a country-esque show. She's got a beautiful voice. She's an American Idol person. I watched it back in the day. And she's she's fun. She's gorgeous. Uh, and then there's eye candy from my wife because the dude's a good-looking guy. So, But it's a country-based show. Uh, and it, there's good music in it. And I'm like, okay, they, they write good stories, right? So I get it. Like some of these things. Imagine what Dolly Parton's catalog is going to go oh, for someday. Or a lot of these country of artists. Speaking Hall of Fame. Right? Um, yeah, she's a national treasure. I think if you haven't... And she's a good person. Look what she did for the pandemic. Oh, she is, again, the woman is a national treasure. No doubt about it. Um, But, uh, you know, storytelling and that kind of stuff, you know, controversial at the time and in some ways controversial now because, you know, he he drops the N-word in it. But um, uh, Hurricane, uh, Bob Dylan wrote a song about Reuben Hurricane Carter. Uh, Later became, you know, then you had the movie with uh, Denzel Washington you know, it's story of the hurricane and it tells the story of what happened to him. And like, I mean, it's just masterful way of doing it. Um, and oddly enough, when it comes to see Bob Dylan was more of yeah. a storyteller. Beatles are more of a, like, you know, Johnny cash, yeah. great storyteller. You know, another one, um, you know, who's Johnny just cash, able to, fire, all to do deep when you watch the movies, you get that sense of what it was. You know who would be great? Like, so U2 has, I'm sorry, Bono from U2 mm-hmm. has a, you know, like Bruce Springsteen did those like, you know, stand up and I'll take like the VH1 storytellers. I'll tell you yeah. what's the meaning behind this song. Bono's doing one here at the Beacon Theater in New York. And my wife and I got in the first day. We we're going to look at tickets. They're already up to like 2K a piece. I'm like, man, we shouldn't uh, do that, right? Yeah. And, I mean, kids want to go to college. Even though you could, you shouldn't. I'm like, eh, my kids got to eat once in a while. So, okay, but um, so, but uh, otherwise, if it was like, I said, what's our cap here? We could have got him for like a couple hundred, like 400. Like, okay, that might make sense because that dude's got some dope stories. It's funny how he weaves religion and everything. Right? I've known about this because my older people in my life brought him into my life, you know, like they're listening to all the time. So then I started listening to him. YouTube has some great lyrics, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm from YouTube to Maxwell to go everywhere in, in, in between, right? So, but you, Bono and the Edge, Edge wrote a lot of the chorus, like the mute melodies. Bono wrote a lot of the lyrics. Uh, we we instantly give credit to you know sure. the, the lead singer, uh, Larry Mullen Jr., the drummer. He's the one that started the group. Kind of he put an ad in the paper. I know too much about them because there there are books around the house and I read about them. <laughs> but that would have been a dope show to see. And he's doing twelve 
you know, theaters. Yeah, I mean, uh, if, if you ever, shows, yeah, sorry. if you ever get a chance, um, in September, I went to Belfast, and when you listen to a song like "Sunday Bloody Sunday," right, and then you do a little research to like hear about it, going to a city like Belfast, and even just scratching the surface slightly. Mm. Um, and seeing the walls that are still up and the, the doors close at 7 p.m. and reopen at 7 a.m. Um, like that's still a thing. And interesting, you know, it's and you now see it in the news a little bit, of course, because Brexit, they didn't factor in what to do with the Ireland, Northern Ireland border. Um, and so as you listen to that song and now you start to see different things, the murals are beautiful and talking about. You know, you know, uh, you know, freedom in Palestine and Palestinian rights and Cuba and, and all these other the, the countries where there's kind of this shared kinship, um, you know, that's there. And, and you know, it, it's just beautiful to see and to then try to understand and realize what this community has gone through, what they still go through. Um, and, you know, and what, what both sides of this, this battle are, are fighting. Um, yeah, to be able to tell that story and bring it to the forefront. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's not just the you know we are the world song to to raise money for um you know for causes as important as that is, it's people sharing their own life experiences like you know you two with with Sunday you know Sunday Bloody Sunday. There's some you know he was on some podcast recently. I think it was Smartless. Yeah, with, uh, I watched that too. Like, and, yeah. um, and I thought he said in there. So I always assumed they were four Irishmen. I think one or two of them is from London or something from from England, right? Yeah, they're in, yeah, two, yeah. Two of them, I think, are English. The edge. So he goes, yeah. So we weren't fighting just an Irish fight. It was like all of us. We had a blend, we had diversity within our group, right? Uh, diversity of thought. And so Sunday Bloody Sunday had so much different meaning, you know, to everyone in that saw in that group. So I had no idea until then. I just figured there were four Irishmen, uh, but you know, because that's what you always hear. It's just Bono's Irish, and you know, he's gets a lot of the because he's out, he's out there they're a great concert they're i mean they were back in the day i haven't seen them lately i saw them 10 years ago 15 i don't know what it was but it was beautiful beautiful concert that he's he's rocking it back in the day still rocking it now but um we should start rapping man uh because we've been doing we've been going for a while this has been awesome um let's uh not rapping rapping but rap the show uh give me your any any final thoughts on the beer like a brl brlo burlo, burlo. i want to check that out I've, i swear i've seen it around and it sounds, if you have an IP, I'm in. Yeah, I mean, listen, they've got so many incredible ones. And, and you know, they're they're also strong advocates for LGBTQ plus rights. They have uh, one called Queer Beer, um, you know, which is, you know, fantastic. And obviously, you know, Berlin Pride is uh, <laughs> probably one of the biggest, you know, Pride weekends and, and Pride periods in, in yeah. Europe. Um, you know, so they staunch advocates for you know, civil rights and human rights. And they, they're able to kind of bring that into their brand, which is fantastic. Um, but it's, you know, delicious. And I think what's also interesting is that, you know, in Germany, there's a very particular way that you make beer and to go against that grain, um, you know, no pun intended and do craft beer in Germany and be successful with it and kind of build that whole brand around it. Um, I think is just something to be celebrated and, um, to, you know, young group, incredibly talented. And if you, you know, yeah. are ever in Berlin, they have a brewery that has a restaurant and, um, you know, go there. There's a beer garden that they have when the weather is nice. I love that. Support them, support them, support them, support small businesses or medium businesses, I guess, as they are, um, and growing by I now. Love, but, I love how you know the owners too. That's great. Yeah. One of them, the we actually, she was an intern, um, 
or rather was in a rotational program when I was at the e-commerce um, side of Bertelsmann. She came through New York for, I don't know, six months, eight months maybe. And, you know, a couple of years ago when I was doing a trip to, oh, so to cool. Berlin, looked up on LinkedIn, who's in Berlin? She popped up and I was like, huh, brewery. And we, you know, came by, met up with her, um, so had cool. a beer and uh, yeah, I've been supporting their brand ever since. That's awesome. And tell us a bit about Zucasa as well. Yeah. So, you know, Zucasa is uh, a group watching video platform. Um, if you go to, you know, Zucasa, you can check us out or wearezucasa.com to learn a bit more more about the kind of corporate side to it. Uh, but we're built on Eve, which is an industry leading video compression. So we're able to get HD content about 65% smaller than just about anything else that's out there on the market. Um, and, you know, being able to, to do that gives us the ability to one broadcast um, content and, and allow people to view content in places that might be underserved uh, through, you know, other systems that might need more bandwidth to be able to do it. Whereas, you know, a Zoom or someone might be at six or, or eight megabits per second. We're at about 1.5. So imagine what you're capable of doing and layering on wow. top of it. And it's high quality too. Yeah. Incredible quality. Yeah, it's HD quality, um, you know, stereo audio. And, and, you know, we can have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people simultaneously watching something, you know, at a, a live or, or recorded event without interrupting people around you, without having any type of negative experience with the connection speeds. Um, and so, you know, we're building and growing. We're involved in the esports space and, um, you know, looking to, you know, be able to, nice. to grow and, and develop in new ways. And, you know, my first time being at, at a startup is we're working our way towards scale, um, which is an exhausting but fascinating experience. And uh, I've got incredible, you know, incredible mentors and in, in the, the founders of the company. Uh, so really enjoying my experience and uh, looking forward to seeing what the uh, the year brings us. That's cool. Imagine like one case study they had given is imagine if you're at a concert and then there are 50 people in different seats all across that stadium. You can be enjoying at the concert, but intermingling with these folks around that. That's one thing you could be doing uh, in a private conversation with those folks, uh, no matter where they're sitting and still watching the show. It's kind of cool. That's a cool idea. Plus other, obviously, mobile plays you could do with it, but pretty cool. Yeah. So, so we've, we've got so much in the hopper and, and you know, we, we kind of describe it as it's, it's hard not to just be like you're playing Hungry Hungry Hippos. Um, you know, kids out there, ask your parents, they know what hungry, hungry hippos is, yeah. you know, trying to go after all these opportunities at once. And, and cause there's just so many different ways that our platform could be used. And, um, it's incredibly exciting, uh, to, to be watching this grow, um, as we continue to expand and, uh, get more and more exposure, uh, including conversations with you in your class. Yeah. Thank you, man. Um, we will get you back on because I think there's so many different topics we can discuss. And this was the first one we wanted to plug in. And I do want to share this with my class. because this is a topic that is going to be we're going to be discussing in the venture arena around it. Uh, there's quite a bit of uh, activity in the space. But thank you, Greg Brigida. Wait, currently VP at Zucasa. So what are we doing? What are we doing? I missed something. I missed something. Shit you should know, man. Shit you should know. Shit you should know, man. You know, I'm not used to doing the I'm Come not the point. On. I'm the point God. Uh, current version of him, so I'm always fumbling because uh, this guy, you know, Chris Paul's not doing so hot. Disappointed. But I actually, might do well this now with Katie. Give me, give me a shit. You know, what, what are you talking about? The one I'm following right now is Supreme Court Section 230. So it's kind of up for discussion. Now, I'm torn. I got to admit, I'm torn. For those not familiar, Section 230 is basically the legal code that protects 
um, content platforms from being liable for the content that users post. And that's the very general version of it. You know, don't take action on it. Speak to your attorney. But what's happening right now is kind of if the social media platform, whether it was and I use that with a very paint that with a very broad brush, like if YouTube, Twitter, et cetera, if it was just I'm on Instagram and I follow 10 people and my feed is those 10 people in the chronology that they posted. That's one thing. And it's the, I'm not liable for what they put up. Yeah. But if I now have an algorithm and I'm analyzing every little thing that this user is doing and I'm recommending content and I'm moving content up in the queue and all of these things, my thumb is now on the scale. And so the debate is, yeah, two-thirds protects you from what's posted, but does it protect you from the algorithms you create and you control what people see and how often they see it and where they see it and what things you recommend? Then, even though you're recommending something that somebody else posted, you're still recommending it. You're now playing a role in it. And so that's where this debate is kind of right. happening. It's made at the Supreme Court because the issue of kind of, you know, terrorist organizations that have posted content that radicalized people who, you know, then took it upon themselves to do horrendous act, you know, horrendous acts. Um, to what extent is yeah. that platform liable for that? Because they allow that content to be on there. That's one thing. But pushing it and promoting it potentially now you've played a role. Um, and so I'm following that because 230 is a very, very important thing. Um, like we need to have Section 230 in some facet. Um, there need to be those protections. Yeah. But when all of a sudden you're now you know, injecting something into the equation, you have responsibility. But do you have liability? That's what we're going to see. And that, I think now that's that's going to be the question because, you know, this is what, 25, 27 years old or something like that in the 90s, right? It can't be 27, maybe like 20, 25. Yeah, it's got to be yeah, somewhere so, I mean, around there. Yeah, it's got to be somewhere then, around there. I would equate it to this. Like if you have a news, you're the, you you print paper and then they put newspaper, hateful words on that newspaper back in the day and you're known for doing that. So you have control over that, right? If you were just a Wall Street Journal or New York Times, let's say they're not agnostic, but they, they lean either way, but they have business news, let's say. Uh, Wall Street Journal, let's go there. Um, generally, paper and then the the Wall Street Journal has their certain kind of editorial, you know, that they're putting out there, their tone. They put that out there. They're responsible for that dialogue. If it's not hateful, it's the one thing. But if you're now, it's like the paper, but you can, you know, is influencing and you have certain types of words that only go on this paper and that's kind of analogous to your algorithm. They are definitely role players in that. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting. And. And it was one thing, of course, you know, you know, 230 applies kind of to the to the digital space. You know, if you're a newspaper, you publish stuff like it that right. can't be edited after you, per se. But, you know, and 230 protects you like if the comment section, if someone leaves something hateful or hurtful or whatever in the comment section of an article on the Wall Street Journal, like, yeah, you should not be on the hook for that. But if you took that comment and put it in the center of the homepage, You've now altered that. You played a role. And so, you know, 
And when you're doing it also because, you know, you because of also web analytics and everything, you know, every little thing leaves a, a data point. It's like, well, I have a choice. I can either, you know, let's go red and blue like politics, right? This person reads a lot of red leaning articles. I can present them with some counter arguments that are blue leaning articles, but I risk their eyeballs leaving the site because now I'm whatever. Or I can pump them full of more red stuff, keep their eyeballs on my website, get those ad dollars, which keeps the lights on and helps us make payroll in a very competitive marketplace. It's not an easy decision. And, you know, so I can understand the conundrum that these media outlets are facing in that I I need the ad dollars so that we can pay people and keep our our site up and running. But do you have a responsibility to have an informed society? And when you're pumping them full of the same content and not giving them a counter narrative and they get led down these rabbit holes and when you're not satisfying their fix, they find something more extreme and more extreme and more extreme. It's scary. Okay. Yeah, and that's, you know, we, we got a problem. You go down hands. these rabbit holes, right? It's, it's yeah. scary that, uh, before we're not going to get two sides of everything before when it was just physical things, you could go and read what you wanted. But now if you're in this, you get fed something and you'll get fed more of the same. YouTube's notorious. TikTok's notorious for this. They'll take you down rabbit holes. You're like, Hey, I'm looking up like sneakers. All of a sudden I'm at a, at a, a racist rally. Uh, I was just looking up sneakers, man. And, you know, but you know, they'll, you know what I'm saying? Well, they'll take you down to these rabbit holes and they'll feed you things. So I'll, I want people to be able to think outside of what they see. Cause if that's all they see, that's all they know. And that's going to be the scary part of this movie for us. So I get it. I don't like regulation yep. or policing of any sort, but then sometimes maybe there needs to be some sort of balancing equation. I get it. Otherwise, this could get bad quickly. Yeah. And you take yeah. a look now. I mean, obviously, yeah. I mean, you know, exactly. You know, the Wall Street Journal, when they published, you know, the, this stuff on, on Instagram, um, you know, I, I, you've got kids. I don't have kids, but I have you know, a niece and nephew that are at very impressionable ages, and I, I yeah. love them dearly. And it's terrifying to know that, you know, a 14-year-old girl looks up, you know, how to stretch before cheerleading practice on, on Instagram and get some exercise videos. And then within six minutes, they're seeing pro-anorexia, um, yeah. you know, recommended content. Like, uh, yeah, that's terrifying. That's scary. Yeah. And so, you know, to what extent it's, well, but, but we didn't post that pro-ana content. Yeah, but you recommended it. Your algorithm yeah. did it and you're on the hook yeah. for that. Um you know, you and I had the conversation, you know, the other day when we were talking about like the old ethical dilemmas, right? The trolley car and, you know, well, AI is AI. Well, who's responsible when it does something? And they have the argument that, you know, the, the, the trolley car, don't pull the lever. It kills five people. You pull the lever and it only kills one person. You know, yeah. you've now played you, a role yeah. in that one person's death, right? Well, if I'm coding for AI and it's a, a self-driving vehicle, and it's yeah. the kill one person instead of five. Well, you'd say, well, oh, obviously you do that. Well, what if the one person is the driver? Yeah. And yeah. all of a sudden it's the kill me instead yeah. of those five people. It's not as black and white when that yeah. ethical dilemma now changes. Um, I'd love to say I came up with that. It was actually some researchers at Stanford, um, uh, you know, who teach a course in technology uh, ethics. Um Okay. They were on politicology a while back, uh, but so. But I love that example because it's the oh, this is more complicated than it used to be. Um, 
So all of those aspects, um, I think it's a, it's an important discussion. Whatever your views might be on the Supreme Court and the appointments and the positions and, and other agreements, having a conversation about this because the landscape has changed so significantly than 25, 30 years ago when Section 230 was, was pushed through, it's, it's not, it, it needs to be updated in some fashion. I just don't have where that line has to move to. But to me, once you start playing a role in who sees what, ooh, but yeah. yeah, but something needs to be done. And I think, again, that algorithm, if you're now recommending things, even though someone else created the thing you recommend, you're recommending it. I, I like it. Thank you for that. Um, I'm going to go, yeah, that was pretty dense. I'm going to go simpler. Um, but no, not too simple. So actually a dear student of mine, Nicholas, very kind of him, gave me a book the other day. It's about Andy Dunn created, he's one of the co-founders of Bonobos. It's a fashion brand. And I, I'd read, I'd heard about him before. Like he's from Chicago. That's why. And then he's half Indian. He's half Irish, half Indian, I think. So from all those different communities, I kept hearing he's a Chicago rising star. Uh, Walmart wanted to, you know, they want to get sexier. So they're competing with Amazon. So they acquired his brand, which is kind of a, not high, high end, but high mid tier, high end. Uh, it's not Coles, Coles cash type shit. Uh, it's like, it's mid tier brand, meaning it's like, you know, like what a little slightly more expensive than like around the Saks, let's say Saks, Nordstrom, let's say, I guess around there. So in the, but like cool looking, classy looking clothes for younger gentlemen. And, and then I think Walmart acquired them for like 300 mil. He went on, was like strategic fashion, something to director or something for a while. But this book, it's called Burn Rate. And it talks about, I don't know, he just gave the book to me on Wednesday, so I'm going to pour into it this weekend. But I think it's about his mental health struggles around this because raising capital is a daunting task, right? Once you get it done, I know I've helped several, I've invested in a lot of companies. And when I see some of these founders, you know, what the responses they get, I know because I've seen them all, right? I've, I have don't think I, oh, I've had to been, be in a lot of those conversations. It's tough. And you hear 90 no's and you might hear one yes, right? Uh, and then, but you have this beautiful idea that you want to continue working on. So I think par- partially the book's about that. It might talk about the Walmart deal a little bit. And then, and then he's not involved with the company. He's just kind of, he's made his money. He's kind of chilling out in Chicago doing other things with his wife, I think, doing uh, philanthropic work. So I'm, I'm excited to read that. So thank you, Nicholas, for bringing the book to my attention. Yeah. I, and I think that's, that's important. You know, you bring up you know, mental health and I think in general, I'm glad more and more conversations are starting to happen. Um, you know, I know that there have been, you know, musicians who have stepped away saying, yeah. I, I need a break. I need to, to take a breath. Um, you have, you have more and more athletes that are talking about, you know, Naomi Osaka famously. Yeah. Um, I need a mental health break. You know, we wouldn't question someone, you know, having damage to their ACL and taking time off. Um, and so I, I hope that it does take a dive into that, um, you know, as well and, and bring up that conversation. I'm very, you know, and, and you hear about this all the time, but, you know, more and more people getting fed up with it. But this whole thing of like it's a badge of courage, you know, or a badge of yeah. honor rather to work seven days a week and only sleep three hours a night. I'm yeah. not impressed by you doing that to me oh so you have no balance in life and you're neglecting your family probably great you know that's what people should aspire towards like i'm sorry that's not i'm not impressed um and so yeah hopefully you know more conversations about the importance of the mental health and getting rest and you know stepping away when needed and that kind of thing and, and having that support network 
Um, yeah. You know, I, I know you burn the candle at both ends. You know. And, yeah, I'm trying and, to get better. I know you were doing uh, that for a while. Sure I, anytime I would email you, for it. Yeah. and you, any country you were in, in, in you were like yeah, always up. Like, I had, a, damn, I had problems asleep. with it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of, I'm getting better. My wife is reeling me in. We've had some people that we've seen in our life, like, hey, if they had slept more in their life, and hey, they would have had like better outcomes uh, later on in life. So we're, now we're just kind of okay. Let's clean it up a bit. My wife's way smarter than I am uh, about it, getting proper sleep, and she's getting there. We're both Mine not too. great. I'm getting better. So I'm, I'm getting better. I'm trying to get to bed before midnight. This is not happening yet. <laughs> oh, I, I, I was just saying, in, in general, my wife is, is smarter than I am. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah not, not just about that topic. Just in general. I know this. I know your wife. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. So can you do me a favor? Just just call. Yeah, I was going to say call her, tell her I said that. You know. Absolutely. I, Absolutely. Hopefully she'll listen to the number one podcast in the world, Whiskey Hugh, and she'll hear it. Bam. Um, thank you, Greg. This was awesome. Yeah, it's, it is the number one whiskey podcast out no, of no, no, just not, yeah. no, general, every category. Uh, 14 billion people listen to it every day. Um, every category. You're, you're soup to nuts. <laughs> forget armchair Forget armchair expert exactly. and then Joe Rogan, whatever. Exactly. Um, you, babe. But thanks, Greg. We got to do this again. So there are so many different topics I want to have you on for, and I think so many will fit into line for what we're trying to do with, in the course. I really want these, I want them to walk up, my students just to walk out, and they just be able to crush it in the world and uh, learn about, you know, how they can partake in any aspect of private and public investing and then you know knowing from a business standpoint so thank you for this uh, we're going to jump for now but the whiskey hue appreciate it we'll be back next week